want you to stay standing and just check out this text with me. John chapter 2. This is where, for the rest of our service, we're going to stay. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Some of you have been to weddings recently. A lot of graduation parties, a lot of celebrations going on. Uh, we, we are people who love to celebrate, right? Yeah, yeah. You, we do, you don't just clap here at church. I'm not a fool. I know that like, you get excited about stuff at other places. That's good. The third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, Lord, help us. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and it manifested his glory. And may we likewise, O God, see you today and have your glory manifested among us today. In honor of uh, this text and this moment, I want to put the title over this moment here for our time, uh, Better than the box, better than the box. Some of you get that and some of you are righteous and that's okay. We'll all end up in the same place today. I just want you to high five a person next to you and say, this is going to be better than the box and then you can have a seat. It's going to be, it's going to be all right. Some of your Baptist uprisings are about to unfold in this passage. I can't believe we're talking about this. When I was growing up, I, it seemed like all of my family's food was produced, packaged, processed, purified, and pathetic. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a child of the 80s and the 90s, is that processed foods really hit their stride, come lucky charms. Some fake marshmallows mixed up in cereal. As a kid of the 90s, I was raised on a steady diet of high fructose corn syrup and uh, hydrogenated oils and hostess cupcakes. I don't blame my parents. I blame Kraft, General Mills, and that devilish grandma herself. What was her name? Betty Crocker? As a kid, I remember traversing the aisles of the grocery store, you know, loading up our cart with, you know, not food, but boxes, boxes and boxes and boxes of food that if you would just add water and wait one minute, you would have food that would take your grandma all day to make. It was a magical time. It was a wonderful time. We had cake mixes and 
brownie mixes, and we had tang. What's tang? Orange juice mix. Mixes. Until one day, my mom decided to mix it up herself. We had just gone blueberry picking. I had never done that before. We had, like, way too many blueberries. You know, picking fruit yourself is a great idea until you walk away with how much fruit you actually picked. You realize, I never would have actually consumed this. Why did we do this? And my mom, left with these bushels of blueberries, decided, I don't know how she decided this, but she said, I'm going to make a blueberry pie. And I was like, wow, you know how to do that. Incredible, mom. And I think she uh, got a recipe from a friend. Remember those days before Pinterest where you had to like find someone who had a good recipe? (laughs) She started at work and made some blueberry pies. And if she knew what she was doing, it was news to me because I had never seen someone, I had to be taught the word, right? I'd never seen someone make something from scratch. Like it was just a foreign thing. Such a momentous occasion. We actually had friends that came over that evening just to consume these homemade pies. And as a six-year-old, I remember thinking, this is so weird. Whose birthday is it? Whose anniversary is it? What are we doing? We're just celebrating the blueberries and the baker today. This is weird, mom. But we dove in. And I remember, even these, these many years later, I remember the comments that our friends made when they tasted my mom's blueberry pie. They said, all together, this is better than the box. Real bakers consider that to be an insult. But we mean it as a compliment. This is better. What what does it mean? It means this is unique. This is rare. This is uncommonly good. I can't believe what I'm tasting. This is truly enjoyable. I think, the, I think the Apostle Paul, or about John, sorry, we've been in Romans so long. We're in John just today, just for a blip, just because I wanted to. Um, we're in John. I think if the Apostle John was here today, he'd high-five me over this title for this text in his gospel. Better than the box. Because it, it, it gets to the emotion of the moment where our expectations are met with surprise. In this story, we don't know who invited Jesus to the wedding. We don't know... Who is getting married? And all we know is that in Cana of Galilee, the hometown of Nathanael, Jesus' most recent disciple that he's brought into his group, there was someone getting hitched. And when someone got married in Jesus' day, there was an extended party that would take place. It was called the wedding feast. It would be a week-long festival. These weddings, the whole town was invited, which probably explains why Mary, Jesus' mother, Jesus and his disciples were also at this wedding. To throw off such an affair because the whole town was invited. Imagine if you got married, uh, some of you recently just married off kids or you yourself got married and you had to go through that process of whittling down the, the, the list of people who were invited because we can't invite everybody, right? Right. Amen. My daughter, you'd better be listening. You can't invite everyone, but, but in Jesus' day, you invited everyone. And so to pull off this event, you would hire a whole team of people. This would have been the greatest reality TV show if such a thing existed back in the day. You would hire a, a whole crew of chefs and cooks and bakers and someone called a master of the feast. This was the person who had to be uh, skilled in hospitality, somewhat of a sommelier, somewhat of, uh, of a person who had great taste and knew all about hosting people. This was an expensive venture. 
It would take a long time to plan, but it was lavish. It was exciting. It was momentous. For, the, for some poor people, this was the only richness of life that they would taste, the only decadence that they would indulge. It was glorious. It was joy. But this wedding was none of those things. This wedding, here in John chapter 2, was on the edge of being a train wreck. Look back in the text with me, verse 3, we see the problem. When the wine ran out, I feel like you just need to say this with me together because some of you don't believe the Bible talks about wine. And um, let's say it together. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no they have no wine. The wine had run out. We don't have too many hard and fast rules at weddings today. Really, just as, as long as the, 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 the groom and the bride uh, say the right name of the other person when they say, I take you, we're all good. Like anything else goes at a wedding, and it's like tradition's kind of been like whatever. But you just got to say, like if you say the wrong names, you're legendarily, you're, you're, you're in our minds forever as the people who said the wrong names at the wedding. Jesus' day, back when they had weddings, they had tons of rules. And back then, for the wine to run out was a big problem that would cause the bride and groom to be mocked and humiliated indefinitely. One commentator I read, uh, Kent Hughes, who's a former pastor of College Church at Wheaton, he found some writings, ancient writings, that insinuated that if you ran out of wine at your wedding, you were liable to be sued by the community. Yeah, you think our laws are messed up. <laughs> hey, you ran out of wine, dude. You know what that means. I got something coming to me, right? It was such a big deal back then for them to have wine. Wine was more than a drink, more than a refreshment. It, at a wedding, wine was a symbol of gladness and celebration. It was a way to involve worship of God and the life that he had made and to combine them into the normal experience of life. Psalm 104, uh, verses 14 and 15 actually makes this rather clear. I want to show this to you. This is what the psalmist says of God. And these are the royal psalms here, Psalm 104. It says, you cause, as the king of the world, you cause grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Isaiah 55, verse 1, you can turn to it later, but it says essentially that God invites us to come to him and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Jesus, in his day, the rabbis used to have a phrase. It was kind of a slogan of sorts. They would say, without wine, there is no joy. You can interpret that as you will. And I do feel compelled because I know the history of our churches and this text I do feel compelled to make this statement, just as an aside. The problem here in this text is not the people were drinking to excess. Like, the wine didn't run out because everyone was sloshed. It's a word I never thought I'd say in a message. There you go. The problem of, of, of drinking to excess is called drunkenness in the scriptures, and it is not God's ideal for humanity. And in God's word, it is spoken against very clearly, as it is in our culture today as well. 
We can't imagine that these people were out of their minds and just, just going crazy. No, no. Instead, wine at a, at a wedding. Wine at a wedding represented celebration of life and joy. To run out of wine then was to run out of the symbol of life and joy. It would be the worst shame. If we look at the end of this story, John calls this a sign. It's verse 11. He says this was Jesus' first sign that he did, turning water into wine at Cana. Signs are significant for us to understand because in John, all the miracles that Jesus does are called signs. They're not called miracles. What John is doing with this is saying that there's a physical obstacle that Jesus is overcoming in his miracles. But a sign points to more than just the miracle itself. A sign has the physical reality of what has been done, but also underneath it is a spiritual reality. It's like a living parable that Jesus miraculously does that points to a deeper need, a spiritual condition that has to be overcome. In all of these signs, we see something physical that is a problem and something spiritual that Jesus is addressing. For Mary to run to uh, Jesus and say to him, the wine has run out. She was desperately bringing this problem to Jesus, saying to him something incredibly deep about the condition of what was happening here in this moment. She should have been saying, she might have been while saying, their joy is gone. This wedding's joy is gone. And I wonder, what do you do when the wine runs out in your life. You hear what I'm saying. This is a sign that has more. We're, not, we're talking about more than wine today. What do you do when the joy in your life is depleted? I'm praying for an honest congregation this morning. I know what type of church we have here. I know that you're honest people that can testify to the fact that sometimes, isn't it true, life can just suck the joy right out of you. Like, um, here was my week. Uh, Monday, my whole family attended the funeral for my grandfather, which was in Nebraska. I have three kids, ages five, four, and two. Nebraska is Dante's first level of hell. <laughs> the second level is hotel rooms with five people in them, three of them under the age of five. And anytime extended family gets together, I don't care who you are, someone is feeling left out or getting their feelings hurt or there's always this tension. But my wife and I, we made it through it. Stuck it out. We're going to make it. We'll be home soon enough. So that on Wednesday when we hopped in the car, we got on the highway feeling pretty good about ourselves, made it to the home stretch, 75 minutes from home, and all of a sudden my car starts shaking uncontrollably and I pull it over to the side of the road and it's a flat tire. No big deal. I was raised at a car shop. I'm kind of a grease monkey. I hop out on the side of the highway. I look underneath the thing. I, I go, okay, this will be, time me, babe, six minutes. <laughs> My kids are in the back. Why are we stopped? <laughs> so I get all the tools. I'm glad that they're there. I hop, you know, in, the, in our van, you got to move stuff around. You got to, like, displace kids to get to that little thing that you crank so the tire falls down. I start cranking, I start cranking, I start cranking, I start cranking. All of a sudden, I feel no resistance. I feel like, good, it's got to be down. I look under the, under the car, no spare tire. Cranking again, no spare tire. I, I get on all fours. I'm, like, you know, look, about to do a push-up, looking at this thing, and someone had cut my spare tire out of our car. Here we were, stuck on the highway, 
so close to home. Our 96 of our epic journey, I'm saying we were out of wine. What do you do when your joy is depleted? What do you do in your life when you've run out of joy? This is what Jesus pushes us in today. Imagine one of the greatest things to do is to follow the example of Mary. Mary takes her question, her problem, her insistence to Jesus and walks up to him and says, please do something about this. And Jesus' response to her in verse 4 shows us that he understands her suggestion uh, that she wants him to be involved. And, And look at what Jesus says. He says to her, woman which today sounds really derogatory and deflammatory or inflammatory, but but in Jesus' day, it would be like saying, dear woman or loved one, what does this have to do with me? As if Jesus was saying, what am I, like the party-fixing guy? And he says something incredibly profound that John, if you read his gospel, traces through time and time and time and time and time again until it actually happens. He says, my hour, my hour has not yet come. This is a gracious way of Jesus talking about his crucifixion and his glorification. It's as if Jesus said, this isn't the mission that I was sent to earth to accomplish. I'm heading towards an unveiling of my deity soon enough, but that unveiling is going to come in an hour of my heavenly father's choosing, not of my earthly mother's choosing, and it's not yet here. So just, whoa, slow your roll, hit the brakes. I, I don't know what you expect out of me. And I love Mary's persistence. Because she simply looks at the servants, almost washes her hands of it, leaves it at Jesus' feet and says, you just do whatever he says. I know he can fix it. So Jesus tells them to fill up the jars that were nearby. These were sticks, six stone water jones. They were huge. They were heavy. There wasn't some magical hose that would fill them up is what I'm saying. What Jesus was asking was for the servants to carry back anywhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water and put them into these containers. Now, if I was one of these servants who Jesus said, fill these stone jars up with water, I might do exactly what the servants did, which is go get the water the whole time thinking, At least I'm getting paid for this. At least I'm on the clock. Because this is crazy. We're going to serve this much water to our guests at this wedding? This wedding is over. This this thing's not going anywhere. Like, who does this guy think he is? Go get some water. I'll show you water. I'm going to fill this sucker all the way up to the brim. That'll show you. I'll get you all water. I'll get you water. And so they do. They fill it all the way up to the brim. I, I, I can't help but think that's a little bit of a sarcastic jab at Jesus saying, you want water? Here's water. And Jesus, I think, I can't prove this, but I think in similar satirical fashion, says to them once the water is filled, okay, now just take out a little. You see that in the text? He says, now just take a little. Take some of it. Just a little bit. Take one glass. Be like, you got to be kidding me. I've All this, what are you going to do with all this water? Do you want me to take one glass from all of this? But the best best four words of this passage are verse 9. It says, so they took it. 
And I imagine being the servant that had that glass in their hands, bringing it to the master of the feast, thinking, if I give this guy the next round of beverages, and he realizes that this is water, I'm going to be fired. Something has terribly gone wrong. And yet, he brings it to the master of the feast. He hands it to him. He's thinking, here it comes. He's taking a sip. How's this going to go? And sipping the water now turned wine, the master of the feast doesn't respond to the servant. He simply calls for the groom. In my mind, the servant comes up, gives him the cup of wine, and uh, he drinks it, and all of a sudden he goes, Harry! Someone give me Harry! Where's Harry? He can't be found. He's brought to him, and, and the servant's got to be thinking, this is it. We're over. It's done. And what does the master of the feast say to him? Look at what he says. He says, when he had taken it, he, 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 he called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. And I can't help but imagine being the servant in this moment, him anticipating, but this is terrible wine. This is below poor. This is a new low. But what does he say? What does he say, church? But you have saved the good wine. Until now. Translation. Harry, this is better than the box. This is some of the best wine I've ever tasted. This is incredible. Where did you get this? There's a message in this sign of Jesus, a lesson that we have to understand if we want to put uh, deep meaning to the core of our lives so that it, it is not a surprise to us that this happens, but an expectation for us, friends. Here, here's the, the, the main point of what Jesus is doing right here, and I just put it in two words. Hope for our hearts right here, that Jesus transforms. Jesus transforms. Uh, Jesus transforms our joy that's what's going on in this situation. That's the miracle here. It's one of miraculous transformation. John says in verse 11 that this miracle manifested Jesus' glory and his disciples believed in him. Now I want to ask you, what was the glory that Jesus manifested on this day? In this situation, the person that actually gets the glory isn't Jesus, but the bridegroom. The one who gets all the accolades isn't the one who turned the water into wine, but the one who was being celebrated at the feast. Where is Jesus' glory? How did he display his glory? Well, those who know and those who saw and those who were privy to the miracle knew that Jesus had transformed, had done what it takes weeks and months for nature to do. He did it just like that. And Jesus has the power to overcome any of this world's physical properties to create as he wishes the quality of substances that are of the supreme measure. Jesus can transform anything. And it's so simple, but it's so glorious here that we can't miss the sign. If Jesus can transform liquids, he certainly can transform lives. 
And if ever there were people who needed transforming power activated inside of them, I think it's you and me. We look at the quality of Jesus' transformation. Just consider with me what type of wine this was. I'm not a sommelier. I don't, you know, I think they sip. You smell it first, I think. I watched a documentary on this on Netflix once. You, you smell it, swirl it. This is a question. Do you sip it and then spit it out? You don't, do you? You do? Well, this is the wrong crowd. I'm going to go some Saturday night to a <laughs> bar and ask these questions. That's fine. We'll get that later. Here's the point, though. Look at the quality of the wine. It is new wine that has been transformed. It is superior wine, the best this guy's ever had. And it is abundant wine. Six large stone vessels waiting for this party to continue. This is the quality of transformation that Jesus does in our lives to give us renewal, to give us superior uh, uh, blessings, and to give us abundance in our lives. And we, of all people, need this today. And I see four areas in this text right here. I could apply this passage in a hundred different ways with my imagination, but I think John gives us four areas where, where Jesus' transforming power needs to be seen in our lives that is seen in this text. And, 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 and surprisingly, we all can see the water being turned into wine as a picture of Jesus transforming power, but we don't see the areas in which John wants to see us. Jesus transforms. And so to, to put this into words that I think we can relate to, I want to use four boxes Four boxes that I think Jesus shows that he is better than that box. The first, I've been sort of dancing around it all today already, is, is the box of food and drink. Food and drink. I don't have these on the slides. You're just going to have to keep these in your mind, bury them in your heart, put them on your hand or in your phone. Okay? The first box I want to draw our attention to is the box of food and drink. Because at the core, what is this about? This is about water, a liquid that is used to enrich our lives, being turned into wine, a liquid that is being used to, to celebrate the life and joy that we have. So many people today... You go out to dinner with new friends. You don't really know them too well. You sit down and you ask them, um, are you a foodie? And we ask those questions because you want to know how you're going to order at the restaurant. You want to you want to need to know if you got to be the picky person who's going to try and like dress up their meal or order off the menu or if you can just be someone who says, I want a number five. We are people who enjoy fine things, who, 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 who like to, I mean, we go anniversaries in my house. And Chris and I, we don't typically do too much for our anniversaries, but um, one thing we do is that we have steak. Do you know why? Because it is the pinnacle food in this world, in my opinion. And my wife makes steak better than any restaurant ever could. We eat that steak, and I could cut it with a butter knife. That's how tender it is. And I, I cut that thing open, and there's like a rainbow of colors going on in my steak. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the 11 o'clock is going to really struggle with this message because they'll all be starving at that point. <laughs> but I cut into it, and I put that first bite in my mouth, and what do I do? I close my eyes. It's not because I'm afraid of the steak. It's because it's so good. In that moment, I'm enjoying some of the finer things in life. God created food and God created drink to be enjoyed by us and, and primarily to be a worshipful experience. God created bread 
and wine for us to acknowledge the giver of both those things as we consume those things, not so that we could just be consumers of those things and enjoy the process. Bread and wine always have the effect in our lives of, of, of not just becoming the end of themselves, more bread and wine, but actually becoming conduits of glory that when we taste them with eyes open to who made them, we say, this is not about the act, but this is about you, God. How good are you? That just tends to happen better with me when it's filet mignon than it does with a Ritz cracker. And yet, isn't it true that some of us really struggle with food and drink? Some of us, when we lose our joy, we turn to Ben and Jerry. We turn to Oreos. We turn to whatever Edo you like the most. Doritos, Fritos, Cheetos, I don't care. You pick your Edo. We, we know full well the problems with alcohol in our society today, how people lose their joy and drown their sorrows in a bottle. And isn't it interesting that here we have Jesus transforming food and drink so that we might have true worship and joy once again. Friends, this is what Jesus does, is he takes that which we try to find ultimate meaning in and he changes it to be something that helps us see ultimate meaning in him. Jesus is able to transform the box of food and drink. He's better than this box. He's better than the box. And I, I've been told that um, wine that comes in a bottle is better than wine that comes in a box. I don't know why that is. I think it's something about the aging process. Jesus is better. The second area in the story, a, a, a box of fading joy that I think we can't overlook, and yet oftentimes we do when we talk about this story. Jesus wants to transform not just what we consume with our bodies. He wants to turn that into uh, conduits of worship and joy. But he also transforms a relationship at this wedding. When Mary runs to Jesus and says, uh, the wine is gone. I've, I've said already that she's saying it's as if they have no joy. Don't look at your spouse yet. But we can't lose sight of the fact that this is a wedding. There is a relationship that is starting, and this couple is about to experience a tremendous amount of turmoil in their relationship, a bunch of separation from their community, if nothing changes. If this wedding is allowed to play itself out and Jesus does nothing, here's how it ends. They have no wine. I'm going home. And everybody from there on out remembered them and their community as the stingy people who didn't have wine at their wedding and their lives were never the same. We don't like to talk about this because in our day and age, one of the most exciting things you can do is get engaged. And there are some engaged couples here. I'm just looking at a few of you. Um, I think the box that I carried around before I asked Kristen that very important question, that box that held that ring in it, I remember as a guy going to buy that ring and get it put in that box, and I didn't want to touch it. I got that ring. I knew that I wanted to ask this girl to spend the rest of her life with me. It would be the most joyful thing if she would say yes. I remember going and getting this ring, and the lady at the jewelry store handled it with gloves, and they put it in the box, and I, I would open it every once in a while. I was in Chicago. I took it out in the L just to make sure nobody stole it. I was like, okay, it's still there. Good. Put it back in the box, found so much of my life was poured 
I, I parked cars when I was uh, dating Kristen. That was what my job was a valet. Uh, rain, snow, shine out, parking cars, every single car parking, thinking it was a little bit closer to the box, a little bit closer to the box, a little bit closer to the box. And um, here it was in a little ring form. It's, it's crazy how small of a thing that is, how precious it can be. And I remember the day that I got down on one knee and opened that box for Kristen and asked her that question. And my joy when she said, she actually didn't say anything. It's a true story. There were people walking by. We were in a park in Chicago, and people were walking by, and they, they from a distance said, you got to say yes. And she goes, yes, 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 yes. Joy in my heart. But we're an honest congregation, right? And there's families here, and if Kristen was here, she'd tell you that same emotional enjoyment that we had in that moment. How many couples, you can be honest in church, you both need to say this, otherwise you're going to fight on the way home. Um, but how many of you can acknowledge the fact that that joy fades? I want to see hands. Yeah. It fades. And here's what I mean. It doesn't go away, but it changes. And you encounter your first obstacle that third week of marriage when he squeezes the toothpaste tube a weird way or she wants to put butter on the oven and not in the refrigerator. Something weird happens and all of a sudden you question and you say, did I make the biggest mistake of my life? And I'm joking, but aren't, isn't this a reality that 50% of marriages today end in divorce. And that is a statistic that haunts us. We need the deepest relationship that we can experience here on earth to be transformed today. We need the power of Jesus to come in and to heal relationships, don't we? And here's what I love about why Jesus does this and how Jesus does this. At the end of the day, this couple, this bride and groom, don't even know that Jesus has moved in their midst. They have no idea that Jesus has worked a miracle on their behalf. They are walking in his blessings unaware. He has absolutely changed the trajectory of their life by turning water into wine. It's as if he turned their tumultuous trials into ceaseless joy. That here they are at their wedding feast, something that they've worked so hard to get to, and they had, unbeknownst to them, a problem that Jesus met before they even knew it so that they could live out their relationship with renewed joy even though for them it was still afresh. And this is what Jesus does in our relationships. So many couples today have problems in their marriage and problems in their issues and they, 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 they come to me and they, they've said this phrase, I've heard this in the last month, our marriage is just dead. And I want you to know that if your relationship is dead, you're in a good spot for a miracle. Because we have a God who specializes in taking bland water and turning it into the choicest of wine, taking the worst of relationships and turning it around for his glory that you might see who he is, believe in him, and walk out your marriage and relationship in worship to him. This is the joy that Jesus provides in the new life when he transforms our lives. There's the box of food and drink. There's the box of relationships that Jesus says, I'm better than that box. And the third arena that I see in this text is, is one uh, that I think John pushes us on and Jesus pushes us on. 
It's a box. If I had to show it to you, it would be the box, the box that we all carry around in our pockets, the box that haunts us and doesn't let us sleep. It's the box that is constantly pinging, sometimes interrupting sermons, sometimes interrupting business meetings, sometimes keeping you from your kids. What box is it? It's your phone. And, and I, you're like, phone? John, that's not in John 2. Just wait. I actually, if I could draw a more specific box on your phone, I think it would be the box inside that app called Instagram that is actually a perfect square, the, the perfect box. The box of perfection is what I call it. This box of, do you love me? Do you like me? Am I good enough? Am I, am I measuring up to what you want of me? Why was it a problem that the wine ran out at this wedding? It was a problem, not, you know, oh, I don't know what went wrong at your wedding. It rained on mine. That didn't seem to bother our relationship. It wasn't some bad omen. Wine running out at your wedding was a social stigma that meant you didn't measure up to everyone else's expectations. It was a problem of reputation. And I see us micromanaging our reputations every single day, posting something, putting something out there, making sure that our food is taken at exactly the right angle so that the world knows that we eat properly. I, I, I watched as, in my own heart, this box surfaces so insidiously in my own soul. I had this happen just a week ago where, where this box of my reputation, my significance, my importance became really highlighted in uh, strangely weird ways. I was at a conference with a bunch of pastors uh, about a week ago. Mark Colton and I uh, were blessed to go study God's word with a bunch of other really well-known pastors. And one of those guys is a guy that I admire. I listen to him on his podcast. I love what, his teaching. And I was able to meet him. And when I met him, he found out some things about me. And he said, I've read something that you wrote. That's super cool. Can I have your picture? I think you mean, can I have your picture? He goes, no, no, no. And without, without missing a beat, he hands his phone off to somebody. And he goes, he buttons up his blazer. I was like, dude, you don't need a button. What, what is going on right now? And he takes a picture. And he says, cool, man, that's awesome. And then he walked away. And I, in my heart, desiring significance, go, I want that picture. How do I get that off your phone? So the next day, I coolly walked up to him. I said, hey, man, I realized that picture that we took yesterday. I didn't get a copy. Do you mind if we take another one? And he goes, don't worry about it, Dan. Just give me your number. And I was like, <laughs> he knows my name. He knows who I am. And he's typing it in. He spells my name correctly, which is crazy because it's Jacobson, S-E-N. No one can get that. I don't know why. <laughs> Types it in. He goes, okay, shoot, shoot me your digits. I go, okay. Same thing. All right, man, cool. Walks away. And I'm like, ah, I can't believe he's got my number in his phone. And then I realized he had hijacked two things from me, first the picture and then my number. <laughs> I thought to myself, that was slick. That was really slick because he knows I'm going to bother him, and now he can't, he can't let that happen. And so I go through the whole conference. I go, well, I gave it a shot. No big deal. Aware of what was going on in my heart, this desire for significance, aware for this, this desire for reputation. And I'm driving home, and guess what happens? My phone 
pings. And I, like a little sixth grade girl, look at it. It's him. My wife is fully aware of this story. He sent me the picture. I sent back, awesome. So great to meet you. Thanks for all you shared. Hope we cross paths again. He sent something back. He goes, me too. The joy in that moment for two days. For two days, I would walk around my house and tell Kristen, hey, when I was hanging out with this guy, and she was like, really, really? You guys are not best friends because you exchanged four text messages between each other. And um, it's been um, nine days now, but who's counting? And, <laughs> and you know what? The, the joy from that has faded so much so that I feel confident exposing my own shame to you in this moment about how we all do this in our lives. We all have this constant quest for significance, this constant quest for our reputation, this constant quest to be important. And certainly Jesus, in his turning water to wine, saves this couple from their biggest social faux pas that they could have ever stumbled into. And I think here's the point of all of this. My grandpa used to say this. He said, don't manage your reputation. Look out for your character and your reputation will follow. When you come to Jesus and let him transform you, when you see his glory, you see his goodness, Jesus will be working to manage your reputation for you. Do you see the point? This is not a box that you have to obsessively give your soul over to. You can be freed from the image of perfection in your life. You can be free to not have to, on the back end of every interaction, every business deal, every letter you send, every opportunity that knocks on your door to think, this is my big break. This is how I make it big. This one's going to go viral. This is going to be excellent. This is me. This is me. This is me. No, no. Jesus says, forget all that. If you know me, you're important enough. So Jesus frees us from that box. And someone took the clock off the back of the TV, so I have no idea what time it is. And I think you're well, well over because cars are parking. All right, let me wrap this up. There's a final box that I see here, and it's, it's the box of religious uh, achievement. The box of religious achievement. What does Jesus free us from? He, he frees us from seeing food and drink as something to just consume, of relationships that just fall apart. He frees us from managing our own reputation, but he also frees us from the tyranny of going through uh, religious exercises. You say, well, where do you get that from, Dan? Well, it was six stone jars that were used by the Jewish rites of purification. These were actually very important stone jars. These were actually the jars that if you went to a meal, like a feast, like a wedding feast, you would ceremonially clean yourself. You would be going through the motions, and in the Jewish way, you would, you would roll up your sleeves, and you would take some water, and you had very specific ways of letting yourself dry. And they had six jars with about 180 gallons of water in them at one point for this feast, I think to show us how many people were there. And it was so important for them to be ritualistically clean, ceremonially clean. But who knows that all that the law does is expose external deeds that can't change internal attitudes. You can wash your hands but still have a filthy heart. 
And what does Jesus do with these jars? He fills them up with something that was meant for religious exercises, and he changes it into something that helps bring about the celebration of life and joy. And he brings it to the master of the feast and says, serve this wine. This, what came out of these jars is better than what was put into those jars. And all of our religious strivings, all of our desires to sit uh, or to do what we know uh, doesn't bring about holiness, but just brings about more law and guilt Jesus frees us from. There's people who come to church, that in itself a religious exercise. They sit in this rows and pass communion along, and as long as they take the bread and they take the cup, they feel like they're good. And if Jesus hasn't given you significance beyond the symbol, he hasn't actually transformed your religious experience into a relationship. And what Jesus cares deeply about is not you just playing by the rules, but you knowing the one who made the rules. What Jesus is so concerned about is transforming that inner heart inside of you, taking what is dead and making it alive, taking that which has lost its joy and bringing back its joy. And I see how he does this through his life. There's so many clues here in John 2. You kind of got to watch this point with your Bible open. So many clues. Jesus manifested his glory so his disciples believed. Jesus is the one who saved the best for last. Jesus is the one who poured himself in and poured himself out. Jesus is the one who was waiting for his hour to come. Jesus is the one who loves to celebrate his people in their moments of joy. But I can't help but think of Jesus the night that he was betrayed when he took bread and he took wine and he broke it and blessed it and said, this cup is no longer bread and wine. It is actually transformed. It represents my body, which is broken for you, and my blood, which is poured out for you. This is to be an object of worship for you. I think about Jesus when he came back from the grave. He said that he was creating and purifying a people for his own possession. That's Titus chapter 2. That he would come back at the end of time and, and gather up his bride. That's a wedding. That he would come and renew our relationships in the most deepest way possible. That there's still transforming left in Jesus' power. I think of the fact that Jesus calls us to himself after he was raised from the dead and he says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. You no longer have to strive trying to make people look at you and think that you're good. If they know that you know me, they know that you know the right person already. If you know Jesus in his father's house, there are many rooms and he has a place for us because we mean that much to him. And I, I can't help but realize that Jesus on the cross satisfied all of the requirements of the law and fulfilled the law perfectly so that all of our religious strivings wouldn't continue on. But he, the great peace, the great high priest, made intercession for us, made sacrifice once, and then he went up to heaven and sat down because his work was over. And so if you see his glory in his death and his resurrection, that is enough to believe and be changed. And so, friends, that's what Jesus is calling us to today, a life of joy, a life that is promised with eternal life on the back end of your death, a life that is constantly being renewed and changed from the inside out. This is not a story about alcohol. This is a story about worship. 
and how we worship our transforming King.